Hello, everybody, and welcome to the April 7, 2021 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I'm your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine. And ladies and gentlemen, over the past week, we've been following the evolving story of 2024 GOP frontrunner and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who vetoed legislation banning doctors from prescribing children hormone blockers and other such transgender-related healthcare treatment. Now... Yesterday, after he vetoed it, the Arkansas House and Senate overrode his veto, and the legislation is now law. Once again, I believe his veto to be purely symbolic, as in he's saying that pediatricians don't want this, and for that matter, the citizens of Arkansas don't want this, and it's his job as the governor to recognize it. It's obvious that he knew, considering how socially conservative politics are in the state of Arkansas, that it was going to be overridden no matter what. Essentially, he was saying, you guys can pass this and you can lose, and they will lose, by the way. Transgenderism is becoming more and more accepted in the U.S. by the day, and there were massive protests outside Governor Hutchinson's office, specifically because of this legislation held by grassroots pediatricians, but all I ask is that you all lose without me. However, that's not quite where the story ends. Last night... Governor Hutchinson went on 2024 GOP frontrunner Tucker Carlson's show to have a 10-minute interview where he talked about the legislation. The interview, for those curious, was horrible. Primarily because Hutchinson could not actually state the major reasons why he vetoed it. First off, because it would just be political suicide. And second off, because the idea of giving children with gender dysphoria treatment for that gender dysphoria makes perfect sense. If a child has bipolar disorder, you give them lithium. If someone has PTSD, you give them SGB. Wait a minute, no, no you don't, no you don't. Sorry, I forgot we still live in an insane society. Google SGB PTSD, by the way, and prepare to get really pissed off, especially if you have PTSD or know someone with PTSD. But enough about that. However, that is not what he said. Instead, he made a very bizarre appeal to limited government. Uh, he here's a clip. First of all, you have parents involved in very difficult decisions. You have physicians that are involved in these decisions. And uh, I go back to William Buckley. I go back to Ronald Reagan, the principles of our party, uh, which believes in a limited role of government. Are we, as a party, abandoning a limited role of government and saying we're going to invoke the government decision-making over and above physicians, over and above health care, over and above parents, and saying uh, so you can't so do you that. Believe it's uh, you cannot engage how, how in much, that. Uh, how deeply have you studied this, this topic? Uh, with... uh, we're about to find out. Not very, by the way. Now, as for his comparison between himself and Ronald Reagan, well... To be blunt, if we're talking about the medical field, that's an atrocious comparison. Ronald Reagan's biggest national health crisis during his administration was AIDS, and oh yeah, what did he do? He repeatedly ignored it. Mind you, I guess that's either slightly better or slightly worse than William Buckley's solution, which he outlined in the 1986 op-ed for the New York Times, where he called for anyone with the virus to be forcefully tattooed. I'm not making that up. So, okay, that's maybe not the best example. And to repeat Tucker's question, Governor Hutchinson, how deeply have you studied this issue? Here's a very simple question from Tucker Carlson that I could answer, that literally anybody who knows anything about this could answer, but that Governor Hutchinson 
could not answer. You say there's no need for it, but you just said, you've said that you've seen research that shows the mental health of children who receive puberty blocking drugs improves. What is that research exactly? Well, the research that I've seen shows that these troubled youth, these ones that uh, have gender dysphoria, that uh, they uh, also have depression, they have suicidal tendencies, it's a higher suicide yes. rate than others, and they go to their... Now, I have no idea what he's going on about, and it just becomes that back and forth for a little bit, with Hutchinson saying, well, this could create other issues, and Carlson saying, well, how do you know the hormone blockers aren't creating those issues? Well, Governor Hutchinson, allow me to help you. This is from the website whatweknow.inequality.correlate.edu. In 2018, I believe it was, they actually did a meta-analysis of 55 studies specifically analyzing how transgender people respond to transitioning into their preferred sex as opposed to the one they were assigned at birth. This is a direct quote from them. 51 studies found that gender transition improves the well-being of transgender people. Four studies then contained mixed or null findings on the effects of, of gender transition on transgender well-being. Do you know how many found that to have a negative effect? Zero. Of course, Hutchinson can't point that out because he's still in Republican mode at the end of the day. He cannot say, I've done the research and I found that there's unbelievable evidence that transitioning would help, because at the end of the day, again, he's still in Republican mode. He's still trying to sell it to Republican politicians and to the very small amount of Trump voters. And by the way, 71 million people voted for Donald Trump. Maybe a seventh or an eighth of them watched Tucker Carlson tonight who instead memorized the Republican Party's talking points. Essentially, what we are getting from this is Hutchinson simply is trying to sell this ideology in a way he thinks people like Tucker Carlson and the Fox News viewership could understand and sympathize with, instead of actually giving the factual reasons why this is good. To which I say, make of that what you will. Anyway, now time for our second story, but before we get into this, I also gotta give you some backstory. On the February 16th, 2021 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review, with your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine, I responded to an article written by Rich Laurie, the editor-in-chief of National Review Online, calling cancel culture the new McCarthyism, and of course, if you disagree with that synopsis, you're a communist. A link to that episode will be in the show notes page or the description if you're watching this on BitChute. However, essentially what I did was I criticized the article for its historical inaccuracies, and there were quite a few, before pointing out that National Review was actually very supportive of the original McCarthyism. You know, the one with the guy named Joseph McCarthy. Well, it has been a month and a half since the first article. And here we are, a month and a half later, and Rich Laurie is doing it again. This time, however, he's going against anyone who dares compare Georgia's voting laws to Jim Crow. In fact, that's the very headline of his April 5th, 2021 article in National Review Online. Anyone using the Jim Crow charge as a political weapon should hang his head in shame. 
Uh, it should be noted, by the way, that hanging, well, just, just Google hanging racism. I don't have time to explain all of this to you, and I don't know all of it. And I might have even just made that up, but I bet you it's still true. Uh, so let's start off by pointing out some factual inaccuracies. Now, this is him on saying that anyone who compares anything to Jim Crow should be ashamed. This hasn't stopped progressives from reflexively invoking a new Jim Crow. It was the title of an influential book by Michael Alexander on imprisonment in America. Well, the book was specifically focusing on the drug war, which Nixon aide John Richmond said he specifically was created because Richard Nixon could not make it illegal to be against the war in Vietnam, nor black. How would you make it illegal to be black anyway? I mean, I guess Richmond was right. In a literal sense, Nixon couldn't do that. The drug war supposedly constituted a new Jim Crow. Yeah, for reasons I just said. The filibuster is a Jim Crow relic. Now, I don't agree with that framing necessarily, but it should be noted that the Senate's website does call the filibuster particularly useful in stopping civil rights legislation, with the longest filibuster in history being Strom Thurmond's 1957 filibuster, again against the Civil Rights Act. The Supreme Court Shelby decision in 2013 risked catalyzing or catacalizing a new era of Jim Crow, all because the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, which was specifically designed to stop the then-current Jim Crow. Yeah, I don't see the illogical thinking here, Rich. I'm just going to be blunt with you. Lori then goes on to give some very vivid and eerie examples of just how evil Jim Crow was. I'll even read you one of these. In 1890, Mississippi adopted a post-reconstruction constitution meant to lock blacks out of politics. Blacks, that's just a weird way to phrase it, but okay. It instituted poll taxes with unpaid taxes accumulating over time. Registrars had the authority to judge whether a potential voter had passed a literacy test and reliably approved whites and never blacks. The notorious bigot and future governor of Mississippi, James K. Vardaman, or, yeah, Vardaman, declared, quote, There is no use to equivocate or lie about the matter. Mississippi's Constitutional Convention in 1890 was held for no other purpose than to eliminate the, I'm not saying that word, Lori, by the way, bleeps it out, so I'm going to do the same, from politics. Let the world know it is as it is. And so it went everywhere in the South. In Louisiana, which was fairly typical, the black electorate collapsed from 130,000 to a few thousand. At the time the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, only a tiny percentage of eligible African Americans could vote in Mississippi. Now, this is what Jim Crow likely is to Lori. And in all fairness, this is what it likely is to many Americans. Just a scatter plot of some really bad policies specifically designed against blacks, and of course, designed by people who every other word of their, out of their mouth was a racial slur. However, reality finds that to not be the case. Here's a question. Do you guys know what state the Ku Klux Klan had the most influence over? I actually asked some family members this very question just before recording to see if they knew, and we got typical answers. Some said Mississippi, or Georgia, or Alabama, or Texas. Actually, it was Indiana. For context, I live in Ohio, meaning I border that state, and my state also borders Canada.
Okay, so this was not only a southern problem. A small amount of my state also borders a small amount of West Virginia, which, as every good Republican knows, was represented by a man named Robert Byrd for roughly half a century in the United States Senate, the longest-serving senator in U.S. history. Robert Byrd was in the Ku Klux Klan for a brief period of time in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, I have defended Byrd in the past. He made very, very good progress on the race issue, and by the 70s and 80s, basically all of his racism had vanished. And even then, I defend him on the basis of, if you're trying to be in politics in West Virginia in the 1950s, what are you going to do? Not be in the Ku Klux Klan? Now that's a laugh. The Ku Klux Klan nearly sunk Harry Truman's political career in Missouri just a few decades earlier. Again, not a state most people think of when they think of the South. It was all over the country, and many of the bricks were much more subtle than people like Rich Laurie seem to believe. Here's a clip I think Rich Laurie and his fellow travelers would find rather interesting. This is Malcolm X on the issue of school segregation in 1963, I believe. And he was just asked a very simple question about it. What, what do you think of it? And obviously he thinks it's bad, but he had something a little interesting. Just, just watch. We have to go to Mississippi to, to find a segregated school system. We have it right here in New York City. It shows that the problems that the, the uh, white liberals have been pointing the finger at the southern segregationists and condemning them for exist right here in New York City. And to this day... It is New York City that has the most segregated schools in the entire country. Again, not Alabama, not um, Georgia, not Texas, not Mississippi, New York City. Okay? And Strom Thurmond was an old racist who could easily be confused for a raisin if you weren't paying attention. But every time he was asked why he opposed civil rights legislation, he never stated the real reason, which was because he was an old racist who looked like a raisin. But instead, he made a point that nobody could really refute. And that is the fact that all of these civil rights legislations were specifically aimed at the South. Now, this was because the South was a place with the whiteness-only signs up. Meanwhile, however, the more subtle racism of the North was always ignored and very rarely actually dealt with. That's white liberals for you, let me tell ya. So, now that we're done pointing out that Rich Laurie has no idea how American history happened, it's also worth asking, what did the National Review think of Jim Crow when it was going on? We will do what we did last time. I will point out that National Review was founded by a man named William F. Buckley Jr. I will then go to this counterpunch article, the same counterpunch article, I cited last time on this very topic, when I read out his opinions on McCarthyism, and moved to its section on civil rights. So what did William Buckley, who again found a National Review, the same, the same outlet Rich Laurie is using right now, think of Jim Crow? Buckley founded the conservative journal National Review in 1955 and soon shifted his attention from hysterical fear of communism to mounting a passionate opposition to public school desegregation, voting rights, and the Civil Rights Act based on what he saw as the cultural superiority of white over Negro. Yeah, um, I could probably stop there, but 
let's let's rub some salt in the wound, why don't we? Let's grind it open a little bit more. I guess those things are technically the opposite of each other, but still. Buckley's racism could be avert, but more often it was dressed up in the guise of states' rights. The 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision was, quote, one of the most brazen acts of judicial operation in our history, patently counter to the intent of the Constitution, shoddy and illegal in analysis, and invalid in sociology. While, quote, support for the Southern position rests not on all the questions of whether Negro and white children should, in fact, study geography side by side, but on whether a central or local authority should make that decision. To Buckley, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which struck down segregation law, banned employment discrimination, and prohibited discrimination in federal programs, was nothing more than useless and meddling federal legislation that sought to, quote, instruct small merchants in the Deep South on how they may conduct their business. His opposition to the Civil Rights Act put him at odds with most Republicans who overwhelmingly supported the legislation, GOP congressmen voted 138 to 34 in favor, and squarely on the side of the, race, of the racist Southern Dixiecrats. Quote, the South in 1964, wrote Kevin Schultz, quote, despite all the image of dog-attacking black children, of violence against black citizens seeking the vote, of hatred bubbling against black students enrolling in schools, Buckley didn't think there was much racism in the South. He saw such images as simply an effort to preserve civilization. As for the 1965 Voting Rights Act, guaranteeing blacks the rights to the ballot will result in, quote, chaos and, quote, mobocratic rule. Eight years earlier, he laid out his objection to giving African Americans the vote in his infamous essay, Why the South Must Prevail, in which he declared the white race the most advanced race and therefore most fit to govern. The central question that emerges is whether the white community in the South is entitled to take such measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally in areas which it does not predominantly numerically. This sobering answer is yes, the white community is so entitled because, for the time being, it is the advanced race. <laughs> you, you gotta love it. This is like literally racist. This is the definition of racism. And this is what National Review was writing during Jim Crow. A full link to Counterpunch's article will be in the show notes page, as will a link to Current Affairs' article documenting various other racist things William Buckley said, including the fact that he once wondered if the 1963 bombing of a church in Selma, Alabama was actually a false flag by a communist or a Negro. However, I want to read one excerpt of Current Affairs' amazing profile on Buckley. Because Buckley did kind of retract his positions. Now, mind you, coincidentally, as soon as he stopped defending Jim Crow, he started def defending apartheid in South Africa just as hard, if not harder. But I do think this sums it up perfectly. Again, this is from Current Affairs' article on him. Buckley's defenders cite his ability to grow and change. He eventually abandoned his belief in outright segregationism and stopped encouraging Southerners to resist integration by any means necessary. But 
like Strom Thurmond, Buckley only evolved as his positions became politically unacceptable thanks to the success of the civil rights movement. Like many conservatives, as soon as the 1950s racism became unacceptable, he grew into 1960s racism, which talked of law and order and deplored the violence of inner-city blacks. After Bloody Sunday in 1965, when the police in Selma, Alabama had beaten civil rights protesters on the Edmund Pierdes Bridge, giving John Lewis a fractured skull, Buckley criticized the excess, but wondered why the excesses of the protesters weren't being criticized. Quote, but were ever the excesses criticized of those who provoked them beyond the endurance that we tend to think of as human? Now, I want to end with a paraphrase. You see, once upon a time, William Buckley, the man we've been talking about, also had a TV show called Firing Lines. And on one occasion, he invited a black socialist by the name of Paul Belletti onto the show. And I may have pronounced his name wrong, in which case I'm sorry. I am going to paraphrase what he said to William Buckley and tell that to Rich Laurie. Because, Mr. Lorry, I am sure of one thing. If you went down to Georgia and told black people, or for that matter, anyone who's mildly literate in American history, that they were free and that their elections would fare, you would be running. Don't get me wrong. It wouldn't be for an office, though. Last thing for tonight, and sorry I didn't get to this a week ago when this actually happened, but... What can I say? I've just been so busy. I didn't expect the news to be so filled with news recently. What can I say? But these past couple weeks have actually been pretty busy news-wise. Uh, on April 1st, 2021, the New York Times ran an op-ed entitled The Real Reason for the Border Crisis. Of course, the border crisis is an entirely manufactured media narrative that, to put it simply, is not actually happening. And we've shown this a few times. We played the clip of ABC interviewing a totally real illegal immigrant who just said yes as the interviewer literally asked them, hey, did you come to this country because Joe Biden is president? Side note, as if that's a bad thing? I thought you guys were progressives and in favor of immigration. But, okay. No one is holding American employers to account for their willingness to hire millions of unauthorized immigrants. Is that the new euphemism, unauthorized immigrants? <laughs> okay, then. I guess you can call them that. And, of course, by the way, it's the fault of the corporations, and in order to fix this, we need to do what Mitt Romney encouraged in 2012, which is you have to be forced to submit all kinds of papers in order to even get a job. Make sure to ask your masters for everything. However, it's important to note who wrote this op-ed, a fellow named Christopher Landua. Now, who is Christopher Landua? He was Donald Trump's ambassador to Mexico in, from 2019 until the end of his administration. So, essentially, the man who served as the ambassador to Mexico in one of the most anti-immigration administrations in modern history is against immigration? Well, I'll give you guys credit. At least you didn't get Steve Bannon or Steve Miller or Jeff Sessions or William Barr or Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo. A lot of really bad people were in the Trump administration now that I think about it. 
Wonder if that's just a coincidence. To quote John Oliver, The New York Times just really thinks you should read this opinion. I mean, they didn't, but at the same time, they really think you should. However, the New York Times got a lot of backlash, leading to them publishing an article today entitled, Why Immigrants Risk Their Lives Coming to the U.S., where they catalog a handful of responses to this op-ed. To end tonight's show, I will read you the response from David Splitzer, a immigration attorney from Brooklyn, Massachusetts. Ambassador Lotte argues that the vast majority of people are coming here to work, yet doesn't mention that Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador have among the highest crime rates in the world. Mr. Landu proposes mandatory e-verify, which confirms employment eligibility. Again, make sure to ask your masters for everything. To tackle the current surge, yet a rising number of these border crossings consist of unaccompanied minors. How many minors are coming here to work? How would E-Verify help? He doesn't mention that immigration reform proposed by President Biden excludes those who entered the U.S. after January 1st, 2021 from relief and includes them as priorities for deportation. This is a distinctive for the people to enter after he took office, or a disincentive, sorry. Finally, it is refreshing to hear anyone from the Trump administration address both push and pull factors. All too often, solely poll factors were addressed, and the former administration proposed creative, albeit grotesque, policies to lessen these incentives. By slashing aid and destroying alliances, the Trump administration did everything possible to obliterate any sensible effort to tackle the factors that drive people from Central America to flee their countries. Uh, I think that that's an opinion that's fit to print. I am Ephraim, and good night.